This morning we continue our study in the book of Mark. So if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 8. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find one on the, under the chair in front of you. We've been going through the book of Mark verse by verse since the formation of our church, which now is about a year and a half. And we get to the last chapter in the book of Mark, Mark 16, and the last verses of Mark, the book of Mark, verses 1 through 8. And Rob will explain that next week because your Bible may have some additional verses. Next week we'll get into that. Let's now uh, read from the word of the Lord, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they, th they saw that the stone had been rolled back, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these great words from your scripture. We thank you that we have hope in the resurrection. We thank you that the story didn't end with Jesus' death and burial, but that new life begins through the resurrection of Christ. And so, Father, this morning, as we think about the new life that comes in resurrection, we think of the children in our church. And, Father, I pray for each of the children in our church that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior that they would grow in the strength and admonition of the Lord. And Father, I also pray for every person here who may not know you, that this morning they would come to know you in salvation, that they would grab hold of the promise of a risen Savior. And Father, for those of us who know Christ, I just pray that you would continue to strengthen us, encourage us, help us to know you better through your word. And Father, I pray that the words spoken this morning would be pleasing to you, that they would be honoring to you, that we would know you better because of your holy word. Thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity. Thank you that Sunday is a day to remember our risen Savior. May he be honored this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, I love a mystery. When I was a child... I love to read Encyclopedia Brown. 
<laughs> Some of you may know Encyclopedia Brown. His name was actually Leroy Brown, not from the song. Leroy Brown was a fifth grader. And everybody called him Encyclopedia because his mind was like an encyclopedia, full of all the facts and information he'd learned. Encyclopedia loved mysteries as well. He loved to solve mysteries. He had the advantage of his father being the chief of police. So from time to time, they'd sit at the dining room table and his father would talk about a case and Encyclopedia would help his father. In fact, he would solve the case for his father. Encyclopedia so much loved mysteries that he started his own detective agency. And for 25 cents a day, plus expenses, he'd solve any case, no matter how small. And he did a very good job of solving those cases. Each of the books, and there's a series of books, each of them contained about 10 cases. And the author gives you the case, gives you all the information, and solves the crime. And at the end of each chapter, it says, how did Encyclopedia do it? How did he know it? What's the solution? And you are invited to interact and think, hmm, Encyclopedia figured it out from what I just read. I'm going to try to figure it out too. And so you may guess or you may give up, say, I have no idea how he did it. Well, you could turn to the back of the book and there were the answers. And so I'll give you an example. Here is the case of the Civil War sword. Encyclopedia Brown gets hired by Peter Clinton. He plunks, plunks down two dimes in a nickel, the 25 cent fee, hires Encyclopedia to inspect a sword. You see, Peter was planning to trade his bike for a Civil War sword, and not just any sword, but a sword that was reportedly owned by Stonewall Jackson. And if indeed that was true, in Peter's mind, the sword was worth way more than his bicycle. But he had his doubts. So he hires Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia goes and checks out the sword. He looks at the sword, looks it over, and he sees there's an inscription on the sword. The inscription on the sword reads, To Thomas J. Pay attention. To Thomas J. Jackson, for standing like a stone wall at the first battle of Bull Run, on July 21st, 1861. This sword is presented to him by his men on August 21st, 1861. Immediately, Encyclopedia, having read the inscription, says, it's a fake. Have you figured it out? You have everything you need to know to solve the crime. Would you like me to go to page 80? Find the answer? Well, the answer is, the inscription says, given to Thomas J. Jackson for standing like a stone wall at the first battle of Bull Run. Well, Stonewall Jackson was a Confederate general. He was from the South. It was presented to him by his men who were Southerners. To them, there was no battle of Bull Run. There was the battle of Manassas. That's how they knew the battle. So no right-minded Southerner would give a Confederate Southern general a sword and use the Northern description of that battle. They would call it what they knew it to be, the Battle of Manassas. So the sword was a fake, the trade was off, and uh, Encyclopedia Brown solved the case. I've ruined it for you now, haven't I? <laughs> 
And that's the way, that's the way mysteries work. When you know, once you know the solution, you'll never read the story the same again. I, I went, I, I graduated from reading Encyclopedia Brown and, and this style book to the Hardy Boys, then Sherlock Holmes. I read many of the Agatha Christie novels. You know, when I watched the movie Death on the Nile, it wasn't the same for me because I knew who did it. When the red paint goes missing, and I won't say any more in case you haven't seen it, but I know that's a clue, and I know how it was used and why it was used. I can never read or hear that story again because I know the answer. I know the solution to the mystery. And so this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 16, today's passage is the solution to the greatest mystery in all the world, in all time. We know, and we've talked about the book of Mark God restoring his wayward people, the theme of Mark. But how? How is God about to do it? That has been the mystery to this point forward. From the original sin, God is saving, redeeming, and restoring his people. He promised a Messiah, and through 39 books of the Old Testament, he gives us clues, pictures, shadows, images, and prophecy to tell us, here's how I'm going to do it. Jesus himself told people, here's how I'm going to do it. And yet, the men and women surrounding Jesus, to them, to this point, it was a mystery. Hebrews tells us there are shadows and types in the Old Testament that point to something greater. Since we know now the solution, that Jesus came, died, and was resurrected, we now notice all the clues. We see the fulfillment of prophecy. We see Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days as an image of Christ being buried and resurrected after three days. We're no longer in the dark. We know the answer to the mystery. We know the solution. It's been revealed to us. We have the benefit of that solution. We know that Jesus came to die, came to be crucified, and came to be resurrected. The work is complete. And for us, the mystery is solved. The case is closed. And while we understand that, we can see in these passages there was a lot of confusion and misunderstanding amongst the people that surrounded Jesus. In fact, they were in disarray. They were disheartened. They were distraught. All four Gospels talk about the resurrection. All four Gospels tell us how God provided for resurrection and new life in Christ. Matthew tells us, Mark tells us, Luke tells us, John tells us. Each of the writers has a little different audience in their writing, a little different perspective. You know, Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. He talks about Jesus as the coming Messiah and King. In his genealogy, he shows Jesus' ancestry to the greatest King Israel had in David. He also, in the book of Matthew, uses a lot of Old Testament prophecy, which we see Jesus fulfilling as another proof of who Jesus was and what he came to do as our messianic savior. 
Mark, on the other hand, as you now know, having studied this book for the last year and a half, Mark was writing to a Gentile audience and primarily to a Roman audience. And as we've seen, Mark, Mark's book, which is the shortest of the Gospels, is full of action. We see often the word immediately or and then, and then this, and then this. There's this constant activity that takes place in the book of Mark. And in fact, Mark talks about Jesus as a servant who came to suffer for the sins of many. And Mark's fast-paced approach would have appealed to the action-oriented, pragmatic Romans. Luke also wrote to a Gentile audience, but Luke was an educated Greek. He wrote using the most sophisticated Greek language of any of the books in the New Testament. And he was a very uh, detailed historian, writing a very accurate account and narrative of Jesus. And he portrays Jesus as the Son of Man, a term he uses 26 times in the book of Luke. And the Son of Man answers to the needs and hopes of the human race to seek and save lost sinners. The book of John, the last of the Gospels written, Luke, uh, John focuses on the deity of Jesus. And John writes both to strengthen the faith of believers as well as to call unbelievers to faith in Christ. So we have these four Gospels, and taken together, they complete a beautiful picture and portrait, a complete picture and portrait of who Jesus was and what he came to do. The Holy Spirit was the divine author of all four books, written by these four men who were inspired by God. Taken together, they form this picture, and it's perfect in every detail inerrant in every way. And so as we've worked through the book of Mark, we typically have looked at the book of Mark, and then we may add, oh, Matthew has a little bit of, a little bit more detail. Because Mark is the shortest book, it's usually very concise. And so going to Matthew, to Luke, or John provides additional context. Today's message is so important I'd like to use all four Gospels. And rather than read each one of them individually, uh, what I'd like to do is to in have you indulge me, and we're going to use a combination of all four Gospels combined by John MacArthur in this book that I would recommend to you called One Perfect Life. What John MacArthur does is take the four Gospels, using the book of Matthew as his base, and then using that narrative, add in additional detail from Mark, from Luke, and from John. And so what you have in your bulletins this morning is not notes, but chapter 197 from John MacArthur's book. We're going to use this as our text for this morning, you can see it's a little lengthier than what we just read from Mark. And you'll note small MK, LK, MT, JN. Those are quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those small letters denote that. And so we're going to look 
at Matthew 28, 1 through 8, Mark 16, 1 through 8, Luke 24, 1 through 8, and John 20, 1 through 8. And as we dig into this, we're going to organize our thoughts and review in three Ps. Perplexed, I'm sorry, preparation for a dead body. First P, preparation for a dead body. Second P, perplexed by a missing body. And number three, praise for our risen Lord. Perplexed by a missing body. I'm sorry, preparation for a dead body. Perplexed by a missing body. And praise for our risen Lord. And just for an added bonus, I'll throw in a last P. We'll look at the purpose of the resurrection in our closing. So starting with the first P, preparation for a dead body, looking at the text that you have in your bulletin. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So the weekly Sabbath has just ended. And we've got to get our heads around this a little bit because when we think of our days, they start at midnight. Sunday, today, started at midnight. In all practicality, we often think, well, Sunday starts when I get up in the morning. Uh, but Sunday officially started for us at midnight. For the Jewish people in Jesus' time, Sunday started not at midnight, but at sundown. And around the Passover time, the sun sets in Jerusalem about 7 p.m. So around 7 p.m., sun sets, the Sabbath is over, the restrictions of the Sabbath are done. So things about buying and selling, walking, any kind of work that was prohibited for the Sabbath, now that the sun is down, you're free to go about your normal activities. It's the next day. It's a new day after 7 p.m. And so we see this group of women who were present at the crucifixion, who also were present when Jesus was placed in the tomb. They saw him laid in the tomb and the stone rolled away. They knew that Jesus was dead and he was buried. They saw it. They saw him die. They saw him wrapped in the linen and embalmed in this 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe that, Jesus, or that uh, uh, Rob spoke about last week and placed in the tomb. And so they are now preparing for an encounter with a dead body. They buy myrrh and aloe and spices. And, and why did they do this? It wasn't some type of embalming, actually. It was to show devotion to the Lord. We, we saw this earlier with Jesus being anointed with perfume and, and some people complaining about it, saying, why, why is this happening? And Jesus says, it's, it's because I'm going to die. And it's in preparation for that. Well, these women wanted to show their devotion to the Lord. And so the night before, they go and buy what they needed. You see, when Jesus died on Friday, things were rushed. Rob, Rob described to us that Jesus was on the cross around noon. He died around three. So now between three and seven, a lot of stuff took place. Joseph of Arimathea says, oh, I want the body. So he goes to Pilate goes to Pilate's place, says, Pilate, can I have an audience with you? I'd like to meet you. I want to talk to you. Okay, let, what do you want to talk about? Well, I'd like Jesus' body. Well, Pilate says, is he dead? 
I'm going to send a guard. I'm going to send somebody and go find out. So then the guard has to go to the cross. Yes, he's dead. Oh, I got to go back to Pilate and tell Pilate, yes, he's dead. Okay, Joseph, you can have the body. All right, now I've got to go get the body. Take it off the cross. Wash the body. Prepare the body. Get the linen. 75 pounds of uh, aloe and myrrh. And then take that prepared body and roll open the, ca the cave or the tomb, place Jesus' body in the tomb, roll back the cave. The fact that they got it all done in something under four hours is amazing. So the women didn't have time on Friday to do what they wanted to do in honoring the Lord with spices, with myrrh, and uh, devote themselves to him. So they were prepared for now a dead body. Let's continue reading. Sometime in the night, we see in the next paragraph, the tomb was opened and the guards were rendered useless. We read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So it's a big stone. You're, sit you're sitting on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You see, God directed his angel to come and open the tomb. The countenance of this angel was so awesome that it rendered the guards hired to guard the tomb petrified. Petrified in fear. They became like dead men. And this is so typical of our Lord, how he removes the human barriers so that we can see the truth. This large stone was a human barrier. God had it removed. Soldiers on pain of death, were placed to guard the tomb to make sure no one got in and certainly no one touched or got to the body of Jesus. They were rendered useless so that we could have and see the truth. Continuing with the text, John tells us, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, actually while it was still dark, the text says and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Meanwhile, as light began to dawn very early in the morning, the other Mary and Salome and certain other women with them came to see the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said amongst themselves as they're walking along, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, for it was very large. In this time, the Jewish people did not uh, put people in coffins and bury them in the ground like, like we do, or we have done. Instead, they carved out, out of stone walls, caves. And often, those caves were just big enough to slide a body in. Because this was hard work, digging out the cave, and it was expensive. And so for most people, it was a singular cave that you could slide a body in. And over that cave, they would put a square stone. And just as an aside, they would then paint those stones white, then whitewash them. 
which is why when Jesus says to the Pharisee, you whitewashed tombs, he's talking about two things. You're dead. And oh, by the way, if you touched an unclean or if you touched a dead body, you became unclean and you couldn't worship in the temple. That's why they marked them white. So as a warning, don't touch this. There's a dead body here. If you do so, you'll be unclean and you will not be able to participate in temple worship. You'll have to go through the cleansing ritual. So that's the case for most of the tombs. If you had a lot of money, you could spend more money to, big, to dig a bigger cave, maybe a family cave, one that you could go into, and, and maybe the husband and wife and children would be buried in this family tomb. But we know Joseph was a rich man, and he had one of these larger tombs. And those larger tombs used a circular stone in a track that could be rolled open, place the body in, rolled closed, so that later, should someone else in the family die, you could also place that person in the tomb. So the women came to this tomb. They'd purchased their spices. They were prepared for a dead body, and they expected two things. They expected, they said it along their way, they expected a stone. They expected it to be closed. And, and what they didn't expect and think about or prepare for was, how are we going to get in? They, they were hoping maybe somebody would help them. The disciples were nowhere to be found. Maybe they thought the soldiers would help them. Uh, but they were surprised to find the tomb was open. The other thing they expected to find was what? A dead body. They had prepared for a dead body. Instead, they became perplexed by a missing body. The fifth paragraph in your bulletin says, Then they went in, entering the tomb. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. They were alarmed and afraid, and they bowed their faces to the earth. You see, entering the tomb, they were prepared for a dead body. They didn't find what they were looking for. Jesus' body wasn't there. And as a result, they were greatly perplexed. Further, we read that they came face to face with two men in shining garments. They knew, the women knew, these were supernatural beings. And so not surprisingly, they were frightened. And the word used here, alarmed, actually talks about profound fear and distress. So in their act of devotion, these faithful followers of Jesus come prepared for his dead body. They're perplexed by his missing body. They brought their spices and they don't need them because they become the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Continuing in the text, but one of the angels, a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, answered and said to the women, Don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples 
and Peter that he is risen from the dead and indeed is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said, Behold, I have told you. So the angel tells the women not to be afraid. And then, in an unexpected, most fantastic announcement in the history of the world, he is risen. And even more accurately, in the Greek, this, the Greek words are translated better. He has been raised. And why is that distinction important? Because it was God who raised him. The same God that had the stone rolled away, the same God that rendered the soldiers worthless, is the same God through his amazing power that raised Jesus. It's God's work through and through. The angel, by the way, made sure that it was clear to us that we had the right person and the right place. The angel says, you're looking for Jesus. Oh, yes, yes, we are. Well, Jesus there was, was a common name, so let's make sure we got the right Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Well, it's possible there was more than one Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Okay, yes, that's who we're looking for. We got the right guy. And, oh, by the way, the angel says, look, this is where you laid him. This is where he laid. So we've got the right guy and the right place. Of course, the women knew they had seen Jesus crucified. They had seen him laid in this tomb. The angel confirms, yes, this is the right person and the right place. And it's very interesting that the angel then says, go tell his disciples and Peter what you've seen and that they will see the risen Lord. Well, Peter was a disciple. So why this call out? Why the disciples and Peter? And by the way, this is in the book of Mark, which we know Peter provided the context to Mark to write this. You remember the last time we saw Peter? The last time we saw Peter, he just denied that he even knew Jesus. And he left in utter distress, weeping, knowing that he had left his Lord, denied his Lord, and that Jesus knew it. And so this call is a call of reconciliation that we won't go into the details of that, but we see in the Gospels how Jesus came specifically to Peter and reconciled Peter to himself. And then we see how Peter used that reconciliation as Christ called him to preaching the Gospel, being one of the most powerful disciples of our Lord. We too, of course, are called by Jesus to restoration, regardless of our denial and our sin. Lastly, in the text, we read, They said to them further, Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And now, by the way, that's a pretty good clue, right? And they remembered his words. Now the mystery is becoming evident to them. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled with fear 
and great joy and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, but they ran to bring his disciples' word. The fact that he has been raised provides praise and worship for our risen Lord. You see that the women trembled in fear, they had great joy, and they were amazed. And it kind of makes sense, this great joy. Jesus, who they thought was dead, is alive. That's pretty joyful. The fact that he was alive is amazing. But why fear? It seems a little out of place. Why, why didn't they just go with great joy and amazement? Why fear? And actually, if we think about the book of Mark and other stories, we'll see that very often the power of God enacted results in fear. Let me give you some examples. The disciples out on the boat, the storm comes along, Jesus calms the sea. The passage tells us the disciples were very much afraid and said to themselves, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When the man with the legion of demons was healed, the people saw it and were afraid. When the woman who touched Jesus' garment and was healed spoke with Jesus, her response to him was in fear and in trembling. And when Jesus walked on the water, everyone who saw it, the scripture tells us, were terrified. You see, Mark began his gospel by telling us who Jesus is. We've learned that through this book, Jesus is God's means for restoring his wayward people. And Mark shows us our response to who Jesus is. To be moved in a sense of awe and wonder that the Son of God came among men, lived among men, was crucified, died, and was raised again for our salvation. That sense of awe is the beginning of our faith and trust in the risen Lord. So after the crucifixion, the disciples are in absolute shambles. They're dejected, they're huddling, they're hiding in fear. They, they initially thought that their hopes, their dreams had been killed along with Jesus. They interestingly change from this craven fear that has them dispersed to great hope. Why? Because of the change that takes place with a risen Lord. We see them in the book of Acts, not in craven fear, but boldly proclaiming the gospel because, and only because, Jesus was risen. Their Jewish background would have led them to believe that the Messiah would come and live forever. And so they're, they were crushed by Jesus' death. But it wasn't utter defeat. It turned out to be glorious victory because Jesus indeed was raised. What, what possible hope can we have in a dead body? But with the risen Messiah, everything, everything changes. Alistair Begg says, The resurrection changes everything. Without the literal 
bodily resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is worthless. Where does he get that idea? He quotes 1 Corinthians 15, 17, which says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. He continues, But since Jesus has indeed risen and is indeed reigning, we sang about that this morning, then in him is forgiveness that can be found in no other, and in him is a future hope like no other. You have, with the eye of faith, seen the risen Lord. You, like Mary and like the disciples, can see doubt-filled fear turn to trusting faith as you proclaim this hope in your heart. The first witnesses to the empty tomb were women. And this is worth talking about because in this period of time, in a court of law, a woman's testimony was regarded the same as a criminal or a slave. In other words, it wasn't very well regarded. And yet the Lord chose to use these faithful, faithful women to be his first witnesses. If you were writing a false narrative, you would never have picked women to be the witnesses. They would have, in the Jewish court of law, been rejected, scoffed on. But the Gospels are not interested in Jewish court of law. They're interested in the truth. And they're interested in using faithful men and women to see and experience and live amazing lives because of the power of God. And so it is significant that it is the women who are the first witnesses. R.C. Sproul says, It's crucial that we believe and trust these accounts. For Scripture says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. We've seen that on the cross, our Savior satisfied the demands of the righteousness of God. He remitted a payment for us vicariously. God did not have to accept that payment, R.C. writes. But when he raised Christ from the dead, God declared to the whole world that our justification has been secured, for he has completely accepted the atonement that Jesus offered for his people. The Father who sent Jesus to the cross also brought him out of the grave for our justification. By the power of God, Jesus is alive, and by the grace of God in Christ, so are we. Amen. This is the purpose of the resurrection. The purpose of the resurrection also points to the power of God who created life itself and is the only one capable of having victory over death. It also testifies that Jesus is exactly who he said he would be, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, because Jesus himself said the resurrection is a sign from heaven. And there were lots of witnesses that provided irrefutable proof that he is indeed the Savior of the world. The resurrection also fulfills Old Testament prophecy that spoke to the coming Messiah. 
Jesus himself said, I will rise on the third day. And so his resurrection provides that proof. As we've said, apart from Christ's resurrection, there is no salvation. There is no hope for eternal life. But because he is risen, we have hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the source of both. He is the source of life and he is the resurrection for us. We can have new life through him and be guaranteed resurrection in heaven with him. This is the power of the resurrection. The resurrection is the triumphant and glorious end of the mystery. How is God going to redeem his people? By sending his son to die for your sins. But it wasn't just about the death. The victory comes in the resurrection. Across churches here in America and around the world, evangelical churches are, have spoken and often speak of Jesus' death. We will move to a time of the Lord's Supper and we'll remember that death. And that is as it should be. But Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, not just Easter Sunday mornings, every Sunday is a day of remembrance of Jesus' resurrection and the life, the life-changing event for all Christians to celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words of encouragement. We thank you that our Savior is the resurrection and the life, that we can have new life in and through him because not only did he die for our sins, but he was resurrected to eternal life and he reigns in heaven. We worship you this morning, Father, for what you've done through Jesus. We worship you this morning for how you have changed our lives in Christ. And we thank you for our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.